It's a favourite musical quiz question to play the first chord of a piece of music and ask what the piece is. Well, what is it? There is something instantly recognisable in the sound. Before I tell you what it is, and just in case you don't know, here's a different version of that same chord. There's a significant difference. Here's the first version. And here's the second. That second chord has this note. A B flat. It's a complete triad of E flat major. E flat, G, B flat. But the real first chord of this piece oddly misses out the B flat. In E flat major, it would be the dominant note. And it's not called the dominant for nothing. It's one of the most important notes in classical harmony. By leaving it out here, the composer is making a statement, and one that, as we shall see, is going to mould the rest of the piece and define its character. I'll tell you what the piece is now. It's Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, nicknamed the Emperor. And one of the aspects about great music like this that fascinates me is that it has a quality over and above itself, an extra dimension that's very hard to define, but often comes down to having more about it than meets the ear. A standard composer, I nearly said hack, but I don't need to descend to that level, a standard composer would have scored that chord with all the notes of the E-flat triad, dominant and all. This ineffably great one doesn't. Why? When you hear that chord, the ear says, OK, that's E-flat major, I know where I am. But if your ear thinks that, there's been an oral illusion. It actually has no right to think that at all. Because that opening chord, the notes E-flat and G without the B-flat, could equally well be in C minor. A bit far-fetched, I know, and it wouldn't have been typical of Beethoven. But if he had done it, and we'd got to know and love the work in that way, we'd begin to hear that chord as C minor without the C, rather than E flat without the B flat. You don't believe me? Well, try this. Beethoven's been here before. Why on earth do we think that music is in C minor? The notes are the same as the notes at the beginning of the Emperor. G and E flat, just not played together. If you followed them with the piano figuration in the Emperor, you would hear the same logic. So why don't we think of that as E flat music? The reason, I think, is because we've learnt that it's in C minor, when really it doesn't have to be. Same here in the piano concerto. Beethoven's fooling us into thinking that this glorious chord on E-flat is a glorious chord in E-flat. And by doing this, Beethoven has defined a dramatic space, a point of tension where things might start to happen. Still, the piano seems to do its best to drive out all doubt, as it establishes its power and range, and, crucially, a sense of expansiveness. This seems to be music that wants to take its time. 
This concerto basically starts with a series of three simple chords that usher in the main theme. But in Beethoven's hands, this is expanded for over a minute into one of his most glorious openings. At some point around here, we should get our second theme, according to all the rules, in the new key of B flat, the dominant. And sure enough, all sorts of chromatic notes suddenly creep in and darken the sunny atmosphere. And there we had a new theme and what felt like a new key. But it's not the dominant, the key we were expecting, because the strikingly simple new tune is in the old key of E-flat, transformed now to E-flat minor. The avoiding of the dominant key here isn't that unusual in a concerto. But the absence of the dominant note, B-flat, from that opening chord has put us on our guard. We might be beginning to wonder whether there isn't a deeper sort of dominant avoidance going on here. This sends a very important signal. This is going to be a big concerto. Every time Beethoven avoids doing the expected move, he's holding up the normal progress of the movement. It's as if he's building a huge arch, but without any sign of the curve beginning. We've no idea how big the arch will end up being. The music still keeps on pausing in unexpected keys on its way. The piano runs away now and pushes us towards C-flat, not B-flat. And it presents us with a magical version of our second theme.
second theme has now come out into the glorious warmth of C-flat major, still nowhere near our proper destination. But Beethoven has used this key for a very specific reason. It's a third away from our home key. Remember that missing fifth note from the opening chord, the B-flat, now expanded to a missing key, the dominant? That relationship, home key to dominant, gives music a definite propulsive feeling. But this is a more meandering, softly spoken kind of movement, with keys related by a third. So, this is not the normal argument of symphonic first movement form. It's something more rarefied, more subtle. And Beethoven lights upon it because it suits his expressive purposes. This is not a concerto about conflict. This music tends to muse rather than argue. It may be in E-flat, but it's no heroic struggle like the Eroica symphony. It sounds grand, but it has a relaxed, expansive grandeur. If this is an emperor, though that wasn't Beethoven's title, it's an emperor having a day off at home, relaxing in his luxurious surroundings. But now Beethoven springs a real surprise, and to savour it in full, let's rewind just a few bars. isn't it? Having arrived in the golden warmth of C-flat major, Beethoven drops down a semitone and gives the tune a martial rerun in, finally, B-flat major. At last, the true dominant. The effect is electrifying, and it's partly because he so carefully avoided moving to B-flat before. After over 150 bars of expansive melody and gentle shifting, Beethoven leaps on the dominant harmony. It's a masterstroke. Now we've finally arrived at the dominant, Beethoven makes sure we've got the feel of it. This whole section has got to ram home the message about where we've got to, even though it's a key that we almost seem to have dropped into by accident. Listen carefully to a couple of bars from that purple passage. Mm -hmm. 
there's a direct clash between the descending clarinets and bassoons. And the rising scale on the piano. And again, a few bars later on, as this section reaches its climax in the dominant, there's another muscular clash, this time between the two bassoons. It's happened before, but not so astringently. So we're catching glimpses of another of Beethoven's tricks in this movement. He needs something to counteract the relaxed, expansive feel of the music. And so every now and then he produces moments of passing pungency that drive the music on. It's been happening all along. For instance, go back to the very first section, where the bass line had this syncopated edge to it. And those notes, accented, off the beat, pushed against the prevailing harmony in the woodwind. Then there was this moment just after the piano came in with the main theme. Underneath that ornate right hand, the piano's left hand accompanied like this. But Beethoven, just for a moment, let the orchestral basses fall out of sync with the piano, producing this deliciously blurred effect. It's so subtle as to be almost subliminal, but this concerto abounds in such passing moments. The harmonic clashes produce a frisson, rather like a glint of sunlight. When the overall impression is one of Apollonian purity and concord, these moments are like the grit in the oyster. And Beethoven needs to do this to balance the immense scale of what he's building. It may sound as if I've spent far too long talking about just the first section of Beethoven's first movement, but that's what he does. When we finally reach the dominant, it feels like a huge achievement. But Beethoven immediately falls away from it to G major, another key related to the home key by the interval of a third. And now the music continues to search for yet another key to settle on. But where is it going?
there we have it: a sudden, dramatic climax with an abrupt shift to C flat, the key that interrupted us before. Here, it's in a pivotal position, halfway through the first movement. No wonder it has such an electrifying effect. It spurs the piano on to energetic action, to prepare us for the inevitable: the return to the home key for the recapitulation. Beethoven can then stay near his home key right to the end of the movement. By the time the vast first movement has been traversed, we're over halfway through the concerto. Not that we know it yet; we're just conscious of the scope and scale of what's already passed. How does Beethoven follow on? Well, the second movement is one of his most miraculously beautiful inventions, and like so many, it sounds naively simple. A hymn like Adagio is announced on the strings, muted, with the unearthly pace measured out in steady beats. It does sound as though it comes from a distant planet, and we shouldn't be entirely surprised to discover that the veiled key of this movement is the key of B. B is the same note on the piano as C flat, and that's the key that played such a critical role in the first movement. In a way impossible to describe in words, but equally impossible to miss in the ear, it fuses this glorious movement to its gigantic precursor. From here on, the second movement peacefully ruminates in an informal way. Once again, the music seems to be rhapsodic rather than dynamic. When the piano comes in, it ruminates for bars at a time over just one or two chords, exactly what happened at the beginning of the first movement. But here, that expansiveness is stretched even further into a wonderfully poised space, a moment where time almost seems to stop.
simplicity is the idea, and from a composer as dynamic as Beethoven, it's something of a surprise. Mind you, it couldn't really be anything else. After the wide-ranging meditation of the opening movement, it would be difficult to have another in a similar vein, and equally strange to have a shorter, more closely argued movement. This music doesn't set different motives in opposition, and contrast different keys. It remains in the nirvana of one key, and offers itself as a foil and counterweight to the first movement, and it's preparing us for a moment of real genius. It's a moment of high drama, a semitonal drop by the horns from B to B flat, and we're on the dominant of E flat major, the key of the concerto. B flat was the note that was so singularly missing from the first chord of the first movement, and B flat was the key so constantly avoided all the way through that movement. And maybe that's why its effect here is so strong. It's not the missing note now, but the only one. At the cardinal point between the second and third movements, the whole concerto has been moving towards this one crunch point. And just to emphasise it, as the piano launches into its new theme and the new movement, the horns continue holding that crucial B flat in the background. Now we've grasped the missing note. Beethoven wants us to keep a hold of it. First movement turned aside from the traditional tonic dominant axis towards a subtler harmonic scheme based on thirds. Now the finale does exactly the same thing. After appearing again in the home key of E flat, the main theme appears a third away in C, and then in A flat, a third away from C. And then, almost immediately, in E major, a third away from A flat. Once again, all this shifting gives the music a relaxed, genial feel. Beethoven's giving us a chance to experience his theme in all these keys, like putting it under differently coloured lights. And as he does so, he keeps finding new ways to toy with the theme, new ideas within it. So that it seems to glint and sparkle differently every time.
Beethoven reverses the tentative steps that began the movement and has the orchestra sketch out the shape of the theme while the piano trills on that note B-flat again. That note, which was so oddly missing in the opening chord of the piece, has now accumulated a hugely powerful significance. I spoke of Beethoven building a huge arch in this concerto. Well, the note B-flat has become the keystone of that arch. By delaying it and toying with it for so long, Beethoven has been able to stretch his concerto to extraordinary lengths. The Emperor is his longest concerto, and its first movement, Beethoven's longest. Now he can set that keystone in place, and the music can finally come to a finish. And he dramatizes it in a way that only Beethoven could do. The music falls away to nothing, and in the background, the timp starts up a hushed drumming on that one crucial note, B-flat. In the end, only that note is left, hanging in the air, the final piece of the jigsaw to slot into place. And with that done, Beethoven can sprint for the finishing line and the final effervescent bars of this wonderfully genial, expansive and glorious concerto. <laughs> 